Good morning, everyone. My name's Paul. It's such a privilege to be able to speak God's word to you this morning. And I pray that God will really speak to you and challenge you as we reflect on 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I thought I'd start, though, with a bit of a story. Um, I've got a friend of mine who really loves watches, and he always buys really expensive watches. And he tells me that one of the most prestigious watches that you can buy is called a Patek Philippe. Does anybody know it? Um, That's actually a Patek Philippe, those watches up there. Uh, That watch there would retail for about $200,000. And one of the high-end watches, because that's a low-end one, would be about half a million dollars. So they're really the watches for the rich and famous. So as it happened, I was on business in Hong Kong, and I was walking around in the back streets, and I came across a stall. And you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) There was a Patek Philippe right there. In fact, there was a whole range of Patek Philippe's. I thought, and they were 80 bucks each. So I figured I should buy one, and I did. And I brought it home, and I was so, it was a lovely looking watch, and of course, uh, I knew that it wasn't real. And uh, what happened was the first time I went into the shower, I came out, the lens had fogged up, and it started to run slow. I think it lasted two, two days before it was in the bin. <laughs> It's like that, isn't it? These two watches that I've put up here, um, one of them is genuine and one of them is fake. Can you tell which one? Mm, Interesting, isn't it? The right one is actually real and the left one is fake. You can't tell the difference, but again, it's about the inside, right? If it's not genuine, it doesn't last. I was really disappointed with my watch. It just wasn't even worth 80 bucks. Um, Here's two cars. Uh, It's actually a a Lamborghini Aventador. Which one is real and which one is fake? Have a think. Lock it in. It's a bit easier to tell with this because of the bent number plate. But the right one is actually real. If you look inside the car, you would have no doubt. Um, It barely has an interior, the one on the left. The one on the right is just under a million dollars. I think it goes to 100 in about 2.8 seconds. The one on the right probably won't get to 100. Sorry, your left. Your left uh, won't even get to 200, uh, 100Ks an hour because they had to bash the wheel on with a piece of wood. Um, the, under the bonnet, it's got like raw fiberglass. It's just appalling. Anyway, um, for the ladies, here's something. Uh, I think this is a Gucci 1955 horse bit shoulder bag. Um, which one is real and which one is fake? Harder to pick, isn't it? One on the left is real, the one on the right. That's leather, that's vinyl, it'll begin to crack, it's going to fade, the inside isn't anywhere near as finished. I think the difference is $5,200 versus $120. So there you have it, real versus fake. You know, when we buy things that are imitation, it, it is sometimes, you know, you can't afford the real ones, but you end up being disappointed because the quality isn't quite there. Now, we can't go buying Patek Philippe's and Lamborghini's, but you understand the point. And the reason why I'm bringing this up as as an illustration today is because this is what we're thinking about as we're getting into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because what Paul is doing, he's communicating to these Thessalonian Christians that he helped, he literally preached the gospel to them and he loves them and he wants them to know that the way he feels about them is genuine and he wants them to understand that the word that he spoke to them was the very words of God. Not something imitation, not fake, not made up, but genuine and real. And because of this, Paul demonstrates this by being able to last, persevere. And these Christians are persevering as well because they're genuine as well. That's what we're thinking about this morning. But I really want to reflect 
on our own, I guess, motivations? What drives us internally? Is it genuine? Is it real? What is it? We're thinking about our own hearts and assessing our own motivations as we think about Paul's motivations in his relationship with the Thessalonians. With that, let's just begin and pray and ask God to challenge us this morning. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we just want to stand in awe of you because you are our God. Lord, you speak your very word into our hearts, your true word. And we ask today, Lord, that your true word will ring out in this place, that we can hear it, that it can change our hearts and help us to see you afresh. Lord, that you can change our hearts and make them in the way you want them to be, more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of a background uh, to the book of Thessalonians because you may not fully know the context. But um, Paul uh, had started in Jerusalem and he went on a missionary journey around the, the what was then the Roman Empire. Basically, most of it was Greece at the time. Um, and this was his second missionary journey. As part of this journey, if you read the book of Acts, he ended up in Philippi, which is the dot right up on the right there. So we're going anti-clockwise. And if you read the story in Acts, you know that he was really fell into some serious persecution. In fact, when he preached the gospel in Philippi, the people were so outraged, there was literally a riot. And they grabbed them and they beat them with sticks and they were severely flogged. And I can just imagine what that would have been like in the Roman world. And then they were thrown into jail and chained. And the only reason they got out was because God intervened with an earthquake and rescued them. And people came to Jesus, the jailer and all of those people and his family. It's a wonderful story in Acts. And then from there, because it was the persecution was so bad, Paul moved on and he left Philippi. And he ended up in Thessalonica. Um, that's that little red dot right in the middle on the, on the left of that chart. I've actually been there on a, on a family holiday. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's in modern-day Greece today. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of like a surface paradise style of city today. It's beautiful. It's just got a wonderful beach and all these buildings along it. Um, And, you know, back in the day, uh, in that day, in ancient Greece, it was actually the capital of that area called Macedonia, which was Hellenistic. And um, and it was it was a cultural centre and Paul began to preach there and people started to believe. But like what happened to him in Philippi, there was a revolt. There was people that started to persecute and he was so persecuted, he literally had to leave the city So he had to leave the Christians behind. And so he made his way to Corinth. And it's believed that the letter we're reading in 1 Thessalonians was written from Paul in Corinth back to Thessalonica. And Paul was really worried about the Thessalonian Christians because they were new. They were fledgling. They were under persecution. He left them in a hotbed of resistance. And he wasn't sure if they were going to last. And so he sent Timothy along. And Timothy comes back and tells him, they're going great. They're standing their ground. They're believing. And Paul is overjoyed. So he writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians to express his thankfulness, to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to continue the relationship of love that he's established with them and to let them know how much he values them. That's the letter we're reading. And today we're picking it up from chapter 2. And, um, you know, in this particular chapter, Paul begins to disclose his motivations, explain what, he, what, what drove him in, in, in Thessalonica to, to share the gospel and to minister to these people. When you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3, it says this. You can find this in your Bibles, and I'm also going to put them up on screen, but if you want to follow in your Bibles, please do so. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God 
and entrusted with the gospel, we are not trying to please people but God who tests our heart. Um, What Paul mentions in that verse there is that there are motivations, and he says that he doesn't that his motivation doesn't spring from error or impurity. And so we're thinking about these motivations today. What drives you? What drives a person? What drove Paul? That's the rest of the reading there. And I want you to notice what he says. He says that his motivation is not trying to trick anyone. On the contrary, he speaks as one approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. So at Paul's core, his motivation is that he feels a sense of responsibility, that he's been given something from God, that he's been chosen to go out and speak to these people. And that's what drives him. It's that understanding that he's trying to please God. As we add this to our chart, we can see there is a sense of responsibility. He said that God tests his heart. He has a sense of accountability. And his focus is not on pleasing anybody, just God. Paul goes on to say, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Paul's motivation, as expressed in 1 Thessalonians 2, is love. And the letter reads like a love letter. And it's not just, you know, a weak love. He says that we loved you so much, he can't even express that love. And he uses a number of illustrations to explain it, or, or, or metaphors. He says, like a mother caring for her nursing child, or like a father caring for his children. That kind of love. Can you think of a stronger love than that? And it's that love that has motivated him to minister to these people. So we think about love, it's the most wonderful condition of valuing somebody. And Paul values these, and cares for these Thessalonian Christians. As we go into the passage, we start to see more motivations unfold. Paul uses counterexamples. He says, I'm not like this. I'm not, I don't do these things. I'm not motivated in this way. And in the process, he reveals to us what we might consider some of the erroneous motivations that we can have. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, He says, you know that we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Do you notice in that passage there, there's a number of motivators. They're all too familiar, aren't they? Greed, wanting something in return, money, something material, or praise from people. Wanting to be liked, wanting to be valued, wanting to be significant, wanting to be recognised. These are drivers that drive many people in our time to do things. And Paul says he was not like that. These are the motivations he classes as impure or erroneous when it comes to serving God. And you know, this is important, isn't it? Our motivations. I mean... We think about what's happening in the world right now in our Christian world. I mean, there's been churches that have been put through the ringer, right, in terms of bad press. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Where 
leaders have been brought into question about what their motivations are. Were they greedy? Was it about money? And every denomination has its day where it experiences this kind of thing, where leaders fail us. And it's part of the human condition that we sin. And the motivations get brought into question. But unfortunately, when that happens, it results in church, in in Jesus' name, being brought down, or Christians being questioned, or Christians being discouraged, or non-believers who were coming to God to turn away. It's really important because motivations matter. When we question the motivations of people, we begin to question everything. We lose trust. And that's why this matters so much. And it's not only the motivation of leaders, it's about our motivation. What is it that motivates you in your work? Is it just a paycheck? Or in your children, is it just having control or being respected or valued or appreciated or in your relationships? What is it that drives you when you interact with people? Is it something like Paul sees? Is it, are you doing, when you're serving in church, for example, is it, are you doing it to serve God, to please God? Or you're doing it for recognition or for some kind of benefit. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? And I want you to keep reflecting on that. There are different types of motivations, as we can see. There's erroneous and there's correct. There's impure and there's pure. But not only this, our motivations drive our actions. That's why it's important. Because ultimately the way we act will be shaped by the reason that we do it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 5 and 6, he says, Nor are we trying to trick you. You know, we never use flattery. Nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Trickery. Flattery, putting on a mask to cover over true motivations, fakeness, pretending, or using authority in a way that God didn't intend. You might be a boss, for example, and you can use your authority at work to make people do what you want, to manipulate them. Or you can say nice words to people so that they'll like you, even though you don't really mean it. Or you can pretend to be a person that you're really not. All of these things are part of having impure and erroneous motives. I've added a circle there to our little chart. Um, We've got the motivations in the centre which drive our actions. And those actions there which are part of the impure motivations is flattery, fakeness, or using false authority and trickery. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. He says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. It's interesting when you read Acts to see how Paul actually conducted himself. Um, He was actually a tent maker. So he used to make tents at night and preach in the day. Why, you might ask, would he do that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting paid to live to earn a living from the gospel. When we pay our ministers and people that are in churches, 
Um, they're being paid so they can minister. That's understandable. It's right. But Paul really just went the extra mile. He didn't want to get take anything from these people. And it was so that no one could accuse him of doing it for greed or for some benefit or some perk. He worked day and night, laboured, didn't want to, was self-sufficient so that the gospel would not be entangled with any of these incorrect motives. It's incredible, really, when you think about it. And that's what he did. He preached the gospel. He spoke God's very word into their lives. And he didn't ask for anything in return. This is part of Paul's actions, which are driven from his motivations of love and pleasing God and responsibility, that he shares the word of God, the most precious thing that he has to give. And he does this in the most selfless way. Paul goes on to say, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were amongst you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and authority. Paul's conduct with these Christians, driven by his pure motivation, was that he was faultless, as humanly as speaking as you can be. He was just upright, had integrity in what he said and did. And he says, you know this, you can see it, it's evident. We were encouraging and comforting and urging, taking care of them when they were struggling, speaking words to strengthen them, uplifting them and challenging them, not for his own ends, but so that they could live lives that were pleasing to God. That was his motivation. That was his driver to please God. And he wanted them to please God as well. Paul's actions are really outstanding and evident, and they reveal his motivations. As you're looking at these two counter-opposed motivational things, the erroneous, the pure, and the, and the impure, it asks us to question, what is at the core of all of this? What is the foundation on which these two motivations, are, I guess, are driven, resulting in action? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to suggest to you that there are two sources, one of two. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Paul was able to keep going when it made no sense. Why are you doing this, Paul? You're not getting paid. You're getting beaten. You're getting ridiculed. You're getting jailed. You don't have a place to stay. You're working day and night. Why are you doing it? We know you're motivated, but why? Paul says that he was able to persevere. He was able to stand in that situation where really there's no reason to because he had the help of God. 
God was at the very core of what was driving and empowering and enabling Paul to do the things that he did. As we think about our motivations as whether they're impure or pure, we see that the pure motivation has God as its source. God is right at the centre. And on the contrary, the person who is pleasing themselves by grease or self-praise, who's using all these negative techniques, at the centre of that is themselves. You have one of two sources. And you can choose, I guess, which one you're going to go for there. Is it going to be, are you going to be driven by your own desires? Or are you going to put God at the centre of your world so that you can live out a life that pleases him? It's also possible to be sort of partway in between. Sometimes we might start out pleasing God, with God at the centre, and we serve God. We, we're parents, we're workers, husbands, wives, children, whatever it might be. We live out our life with God as the source, but along the way we get contaminated. The pressures of life come in, the sparkle of things, maybe a bit of attention, maybe a little bit too much money, and then we start to get distracted and lose our way and we start to think in that second way. I want you to challenge yourself this morning. Have a think about your motivations. Why are you doing the things that you do? What drives you? What's at its source? Is it God? Through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through, through understanding who Jesus is, that you're empowered to live out your life? Is that who you're serving? Or is it just yourself? And have you fallen into that? The reason why this is really important is because ultimately the effect that we have and the way we live out our lives, driven by that source and that motivation and those actions, it ultimately has an impact on our world. It has an impact on our relationships. It has an impact on everything that we do. Motivation's key. And at the best sense, when we've got God at the centre, it actually reveals who God is. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as human words, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. You see, what Paul had been doing was evident. If you look in the passage, actually, four times he says, you know, you know this. He says, you are witnesses. You've seen it two times. And then he goes on to say, you can't, don't you remember? Everything that he was doing, they could see it, they could know it, they could remember it. And it all pointed to one thing, that God was at the center. And that reveals who God is. And he says, you receive the word of God not like just any word, you received it as it truly is, the word of God. You see, the word of God stands on its own feet. It doesn't depend on Paul. It is the word of God. But when we serve God and we're witnesses and we testify and we don't, we're faithful in what we do, it helps 
support God's word. And they can see that Paul was motivated by something greater than himself. It's evident. And that goes with the gospel to uphold it. It's God's word. But the way we also live our lives testifies to it. You know, I've got um, some friends who've been caught up in some of the issues where churches have been brought into question for their motivations. And I can tell you that, you know, people look at denominations and they like to blame and say, oh, that denomination, this one. Well, you know, at the end of the day, at the heart of every church, there's people. People that want to serve Jesus. True Christian believers. And they're discouraged. I've seen it. There's um, people that write music that don't want to write music anymore because they're upset. And there's people that are in ministry that are stepping down from ministry because they're disillusioned, because their leaders' motivations have been brought into question. And there's people that, um, that are just Christians that were becoming Christians that have left and turned away because of a bad Christian testimony, a bad Christian witness. So it's true that when our motivations are, are, are off or when they're revealed as being off, that it damages God's church. And it's also true that when our motivations are good and that we're acting in a holy way, a pure way, that it builds God's church. And this is true not for leaders, it's for everyone and for your children and for your marriage and for your relationships. You can tear up or you can build up and it's going to come down to what's at your core. And whether you can persevere in those circumstances. Our right motivations do actually reveal who God is. And finally, and this is a word of word of warning, is that God ultimately is judge of our motivations and our actions. He sits above them all. Rightly so. Um, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says this. Speaking about those who had been persecuting Paul and the Christians, he says, They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God is upon them at last. He's speaking about those who have completely rejected Jesus. In fact, in the passage, he describes them as those who crucified Christ or killed the prophets. It's that, those people that ultimately reject God's truth. And Paul says here that they displease God, that they're hostile, obstructive, that they interfere with people coming to salvation and that they're sinful in this, which means they're ultimately breaking God's rules. He's, He's... They're going against God. They're in opposition to him. And so God is angry about this. And he promises that God's wrath, his anger, his judgment is imminent because of such things. Now, if we find ourselves with two feet, one in the 
pleasing self category and one in the pleasing God category. Or maybe we're just in the pleasing self category. It, God stands as judge of all. And he will bring all our actions for those who ultimately reject Jesus or those who even stand two feet. They're under God's judgment. But I've got some good news for you as well. In this passage, it talks about those who are being saved. God is a merciful God. And though he's righteous, he stands ready to forgive. And for if you, if you find yourself in both of those camps where your motivations are perhaps off, just come back to Jesus. Come back to God and ask him to forgive you. And you can be rescued from that because God forgives because he loves. It means that we can come back to God when we're impure, when we are struggling, when we're not perfect. And if you're a person here today that is rejecting God and you've built your life on yourself, it's time to give that up. It's time to have a heart change. To come to God, submit to him and ask him to change your very heart, to put him at the centre of your life and to make your life a miracle which testifies to who he is and impacts the world for his glory. That's where he wants you to be. And if you're a person here today who is faithful and you've been serving God and your heart is centred on him and you just want to please him in every way that you can live your life every day, you just think, what can I do? How can I please God in my work, in my family, in whatever it is? Then thank God for you. I pray that God will strengthen you and enable you to be able to serve him more and more. Pray that he can strengthen you to be able to persevere, as Paul did, in the face of persecution, in the face of struggle, in the face of challenges of life, that he can strengthen you in your inner being to do more and more. I want to uh, finish off by showing you a couple of pictures again. We can't all own Patek Philippe's. Or Lamborghinis or Gucci handbags. But there is something we can all have. We can all have a genuine, not fake, heart for Jesus that transforms us and our world. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and bring ourselves to your throne. Lord, we bring our lives to you and ask you to make them a miracle. Lord, we're sorry for the times when our motivations have been for ourselves, when we've acted selfishly. We want to bring our failures before you, our failed character and things that we do and the way that we think that's sometimes so contaminated. We want to ask you, Lord, to change our hearts and to reshape us again and make us more like Christ and put your Spirit in our centre of our being and Jesus' word right at our hearts so that we can serve you and do so faithfully. Lord, I pray for those here today that don't know you, that have never lived their lives in any other way other than for themselves. I pray they can find the richness and the strength that comes from knowing you. Please strengthen our church, we pray, and make us genuine Christians that serve you for the right reasons. We just ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.